We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the True Faith Podcast. Uh, this is the second in a special series of podcasts we've got going on with the Newcastle United Foundation. Um, if you haven't listened to the first one already, go back and listen to it. It's part of the free shows, um, so it's available on all your podcast apps. Um, so this week I am joined again by Ashley from the Foundation. Hello Ashley. Hi Mickey. And I'm also joined by Les as well. Hello mate, alright. So first of all, Ashley, for anyone that didn't listen to the, the first podcast, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and the programme with the Foundation? Yeah, so I am the Health and Wellbeing Manager at the Newcastle United Foundation. We've recently launched a mental health campaign for the fans. So the campaign's called Be a Game Changer. It's all about raising awareness of mental health. We really want to encourage fans to talk more, just like you would about your physical health. We want to share loads of information on how you can stay fit and well, both physically and mentally. We've got a dedicated Facebook group, so you can search for Be a Game Changer on Facebook and join that. We're sharing loads of real life stories and we're also signposting people to support. So if you do need support for yourself or a friend, we've got the services in the local area that you can access. Cool, and can you just tell us a bit about what's been going on recently and what have you got planned for the summer? Yes, so we've been sharing loads of content online. We've been in quite a few um, newspaper articles, on the radio, obviously done the podcast. The plans for the summer are basically to carry on growing our Facebook group, so please do join. But also we're going to be running some walking football tournaments, so people can get involved in that. We've all, always got walking football um, and running groups that people can access, because we all know, you know exercise is great for your mental health as well as your physical health. And there's going to be loads of stuff happening this week, with it being Mental Health Awareness Week, and some other stuff. So stay tuned. Keep um, keep your eyes peeled and there'll be loads of stuff coming up that people can get involved with. So follow the foundation on Twitter. We'll share everything as well through our um, through our social media channels and everything will be in links at the bottom of this podcast. Just one final question for you actually before I crack on. What was it like doing the show with Alan Robson? <laughs> yes, it was really good. So I was on the on Night Owls with Alan Robson. So, you know, check that out, have a little listen. No, it was really good, really nice guy. So he's invited us back to, to share the messages so we can get that out as well, as well as obviously coming on here. So really pleased to be on True Faith and it was great to be on Night Owls as well. Was he as funny in real life as he seems on the radio? Yeah, he was class, he was he was a lovely bloke. Nice. <laughs> I'd love to meet him, by the way. Uh, Alan, if you're listening, you're probably not, but if you are, we'd love to have you on the show. Um, so the purpose of this podcast this week is um, we're going to listen to Les's story. So Les, um, thank you very much for uh, joining us and for, for sharing your story with us today. 
Um, could you just start by giving us a, a bit of background about your past and your story up to the point of realising you needed some help? Yeah, so... Oh, I would think it probably started when I was little, really, probably around high school age, 12 or 13. Um, my dad had a very good job and I always had nice things. I was very much a spoiled child. Um, and he was working away and had an accident where he was nearly killed. And that was obviously a bit of a shock and a bit of a trauma. But then it was going from being spoiled and having nice things and mega drives and nice trainers and like Brazilian Ronaldo football boots for Christmas to wearing second-hand clothes for school um, to having to get free school meals, which again, obviously now I know at the time there's nothing wrong with that, but back then it was like a bit of a stigma or sometimes having to have packed lunches or sometimes not even having anything to eat, having to walk to school, having to sell my bus pass to other kids to, just for the sake of being able to have stuff. So that was probably the first setback. Um, and then growing up, I was a I was a DJ from when I was probably fourteen, when I when I'd done the B Tech DJ thing, which was basically a community effort to get kids off the streets, and I'd done that, and then I used to DJ at under 18s nights in Middlesbrough and in uh, Newcastle and in Hartlepool, and then I, I kind of progressed from there really to a point where I was, by the time I finished DJ and I was winning awards, I was opening nightclubs in Newcastle, I was, you know, being asked to fly overseas, um. And it was good making a lot of money um, and really, really enjoying myself. But in between that, when you go through the things and you go through life and you have your first break with your girlfriends or like you have your first fight or you have done all just little things that, that just niggle you and you think, oh, well, this is really what life's about. And then for me, the big one at the time, which I didn't realise and it's only realising now, was obviously being... Um, being abused in my mid-teens, which at the time you don't really think that that's what it is, but it comes out and it turns out that's what it was. And you think, wow, that's that's pretty naughty, that, like, like and I've, I've dealt with that. But I kind of, going through life, obviously, you bury your head in the sand a bit and you don't think things have really happened. And then you do your best and then you want more, so you feel better. And for me, it was the DJing and it was, it was more fame. And then I went into stand-up and I had... I was doing like university tours and I was DJing like 4,000 people a weekend. And bear in mind, I was only working one night a week, which is, you know, a lot of people. And it was a real buzz and you don't really feel anything because you're surrounded by loads of people all the time. And you're partying really hard, you're drinking loads. Um, you, you, you're taking stuff to stay awake, you're taking stuff to go to sleep. You know, you're seeing loads of different women, you're always in loads of different cities. And it, it was just wild and exhausting. And as I, as I slowly started to come out of that, um, and the, I had less and less people in there, that's when you start to realise I'm actually a little bit lonely. Um, and obviously I was married, I had two young children, and then going through that, and then me and her had, had, a, had a bit of a rough patch, and then um, the, the biggest one, that, that was my biggest setback at the time, was obviously breaking up with my wife, um, losing my two children, and that obviously sent us back to the drink, it sent us back to partying really hard, it sent us back to, you know, womanising again, it sent us back to just being a bit wild and leery really, just to take the edge off it. Um, and then I thought, right, because I was at university at the time as a mature student, I thought, right, I'm really going to dig in, I'm going to get myself an awesome job, I'll travel the world, it'll take us away from everything. 
So I dug in at uni. I made a few contacts when I was working away because I, I went and worked as a contractor for an oil company for a little while. And I met a guy who had a, a service company and it was an obscene job. It was amazing. It was back-to-back um, hours, which basically meant if I worked a fortnight away, I got a fortnight off. If I'd done a month away, I got a month off. I'd only worked six months of the year and the, the, the salary was very, very good. Now, bearing in mind, at this point... I've went through being a really spoiled child and having loads of nice things, to then having nothing, to then have my wife leave us and having nothing, to then thinking, I know what'll fix it, buying everything. And that's what I need. I need to travel the world and I need to have loads of money and I'll be all right. And then I had a motorbike accident three days before my final exams at uni and a week before I was supposed to fly offshore um, and I never went. So on top of the incident with my dad being abused, my wife leaving us, realising I don't actually have many friends, it was all part of a scene and people wanted something from me, to then losing the one thing that I thought was going to be my golden ticket away from it all, that's pretty much when my head imploded. And I realised that actually now I am, I am uh, not very happy with things. But at, back then I didn't know that's what it was, I didn't know it was depression. Um, and it was only through, because obviously the motorbike accident, um, I had to go for a, MRI on me, uh, on me hand from the damage I had in my hand and I had a panic attack over the needles in the centres for a, a psychological assessment and that's when it come out to me, oh, you, like, you're not mental, you're severely depressed. I was like, well, oh, right, okay. Right, so that's kind of the point where you, you realised that there was an issue and thought there was the point to, to tackle it. I'm, I'm interested to know, like, during all those experiences you've had, um, whether you've had any of the, the kind of feelings that are typical or stereotypical to men that are struggling with their mental health. So, you know, some of the things that you've said there, um, where you've, you've, you've thought that you didn't need help or maybe you've, you've deflected from it by getting too involved in other stuff, you know. Mm. Which, which of those feelings have you had and, and how do you kind of point to, to other men that are having the same feelings what's, what to do? I had them both, mate, to be honest. I buried my head in the sand and thought, nah, I'm all right. And I would go from one vice to another to feel all right because I had this big gaping hole inside of us which just wanted us to cry and disappear and curl into the ball. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't get ready. I was very demotivated. I had no drive. I had no interest. I had no passion. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't take care of my personal appearance. And I didn't know what it was. I just felt flat and I felt like I couldn't be bothered. Um, and it, the biggest thing was obviously I had two young kids I had people who looked up to us. I had a bit of a reputation just for being like Mr. Popular. And I didn't want people to think that I wasn't. And that's again, you try and front it out and you tell yourself, no, I'm all right. I'll be all right. Very much a stiff upper lip kind of approach. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. It'll all be all right. Um, but it wasn't. And they were probably the key symptoms, to be fair, that if I'd have known they were the symptoms of depression at the time, so being lethargic, not being able to sleep, not having any interest, not being able to get out of bed, not being able to get dressed, not wanting to brush my hair, not wanting to put any hair gel on, um, not even wanting to spend time with anybody, that's when you realise and you think, oh, there's something not right. And if someone had said to me at the time where, you know, Leslie, these things aren't, aren't really... Ideally, you should probably look at talking to someone. Even back then, I'd have went, no, nah, I'm fine, don't worry about it. I'm not going to the doctors. I don't need help. I don't need medication. I don't need therapy. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is if if you see it, 
and you think you're all right and you're having to tell yourself, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just stressed, I'm fine, then maybe you should go to talk to somebody about it. That's that's the big one. Like Yeah. So was it that moment um, where the lady told you that, that you had sort of severe depression? Was that the moment where you decided to seek help? And and how did you do it? Uh, mate, it wasn't even a case of like seeking help. It was like, uh, nah, I'm not. You might think I do. You might think I do, but I'm different. I'm all right. And it was for quite literally, mate. I went for I went to my CBT therapy for a year. Never made any progress at all, none, because I didn't know what was going on. My mood was so cyclic and I was so erratic. I couldn't make any progress because I would be okay for two or three days, and then totally crash and not want to not even want to open my eyes. I would I'd go to bed thinking I don't want to wake up in the morning, and I just thought that was because I was tired or I was run down. And the time that when I realised I needed help because I refused antidepressant medication, was I wasn't allowed my children Christmas Eve, for the last four or five years since we were divorced, and uh, we had a big argument about it. Then all of a sudden, my ex-wife says you can have the kids for Christmas Eve. So I had them the twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth. We went home twenty fifth night, um, and when I went home. My, my new missus was upstairs, the kids had gone home and I was sat downstairs, mortal on the sofa. And uh, this little voice in my head started niggling, saying, I should go in the garage and hang yourself. That's what you should do. You should go and hang yourself in the garage. Now, this has happened before. I'd managed to get Jamal Lascelles' shirt from his son for his birthday. I took him at the training ground. Um, he'd, invite, he'd wrote to Jamal Lascelles at the stadium and he'd sent him a birthday invitation. And Jamal uh, said to me, says, look, if you make a sign or a banner, I'll give you my shirt for your birthday. So Chelsea game, end of last season, um, we've seen Jamal Asselz is coming in. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come and find you. We've beat Chelsea 3-0. Jamal Asselz is doing the parade with his, with his partner. Um, he's took his captain's armband off. He's gave it to his wife. He's took his shirt off, walked over. He's gave it to the little end. It's soaked and wet, stinks of sweat, quite li- literally dripping the little ones fell asleep in the car holding it on the way home. His brother wasn't allowed to touch it. I wasn't allowed to touch it. And it was in a frame on his bedroom wall. And, and again, I dropped them off after getting the shirt. And this little voice in my head was going, oh, oh, you're never going to top this. You're never going to do anything better than this. You might as well kill yourself now. You'll never you'll never top that. You're only going to disappoint them from here. And uh, I just froze. I was lying in bed crying. I couldn't, quite literally couldn't move. Um, I didn't know if I had a panic attack, an anxiety attack, or was it me? Was it me prehistoric mind, my reptilian brain? It took over and and froze so to keep us safe. But going back to the Christmas, which was just gone, just that didn't stop this time. And I was in the garage and I was on a ladder and I had a rope round my neck, and someone knocked at the door and the dog barked and I snapped out of it. So someone had a knock on my door and the dog had a bark. I don't know what would happen. And that's when I realised this is scary this like because next time there might not be next time you might end up dead yeah. and that's when I told my therapist that I that didn't tell her what happened because I was scared I'd get sectioned and she says right well we're going to um, we're going to look for medication for you and I started the medication um, and I got better obviously the side effects weren't great for, from the first lot um, especially being a man some of the side effects really didn't help Um. But the, the new ones that I'm on now, I feel all right. I feel pretty good. I'm yeah. st- like I still get obviously angry with stuff, and I still get sad about stuff. 
but I feel my my emotional range is very normal, or what you would prescribe well, describe as normal anyway. Yeah, that's really that's really positive. Um, what since since then, then what changes have you made in your life to kind of manage your mental health better, and and which of those would you recommend to uh to anyone else? Just talk to people, and you've got to accept when you, there's something not right. If you feel work up, or you feel sad, or you feel angry, or there's something being niggling at you, don't bottle it up. You you've got to talk about it. Even if it's a case of you feel like you're bothering people or you feel like you're moaning on or ranting on. If you're upsetting someone or you're annoying them, they'll tell you. Um, don't bottle things up, you need to talk about things. That's the biggest thing I do, is actually accepting and acknowledging and telling people I'm not okay. Um, I, I started a new job in the new year. Um, obviously, I've had depression for a long time. Now I know what it is. But I've never once since my diagnosis told anybody until I started this new job. When I got my medication, the, doctors, the, the therapist said, right... You need to start owning this because you're never going to get better if you leave it to me to, to sort out. She went, so you go and get your meds, you pay for your meds and you take your meds and you tell anybody who asks if you want to when you feel comfortable. So the biggest thing, and I absolutely shit myself having to tell my new boss, oh, by the way, do you know this new hire you've just taken on who's like really, really good and you've recruited him from somewhere and yeah, he's like severely depressed and nearly killed himself. Like for me, sitting there, because that's the other thing that depression does it makes you really really scared to tell people because it also you do this thing called uh, you ruminate on stuff and you, th- you like you think really bad stuff's going to happen and the anxiety kicks in so my new boss was absolutely fine he says mate anything you need at all just tell us I've never been in this situation so if I can help you in any way shape or form I will um, but in the back of my mind I'm thinking oh but he's just saying that and Ah, he's like he's gonna be watching us now, and am I gonna get through my probation? And again, that all comes from the depression. So the, the the big change I've made is accepting that I'm not very well. Other thing, obviously, I'm I'm trying to eat well, start a barbecuing. I'm always cooking stuff on a barbecue. Like getting a new hobby, um, trying to exercise when I can, but it's difficult because my knees knackered and obviously my hands knackered. But getting out and about, spending time with people I like. When I get stressed, just take five minutes. Um. Yeah, just. We and again, it sounds very cliche, but we do this thing now in therapy called mindfulness, where you actually just stop and you think, well, how do I actually feel? Like, why do I feel like this then? Right, right. So, what's the cause of that? And what can we do to change it? Can we change? Do we need a break? What can we do? And instead of flying off the handle all the time, I've been in one for hours. Which is what I used to do. I might just be a little bit annoyed for like 15-20 minutes which has gone completely the other way from where I was yeah. as opposed to sitting crying in bed for hours not being able to get up I got dressed I wanted to not wake up when I go to bed I'm thinking right well, why do you feel like this right well you're depressed well what's upset you what do we need to do to change it who do we need to talk to to feel better do we need something to eat you know and, and it's just those little bits it's just trying to be more aware of how you're feeling yourself and get rid of that stiff upper lip bollocks because that's nonsense that nonsense we're told from being a, from being young people nah we don't cry we don't we don't show any emotion we don't show any, any of that stuff and that's why people like quite literally explode a breakdown you, you've got to tell people how you feel because like if it, if you had a metal beam and you could see the stresses in the metal beam you wouldn't keep stressing the metal beam or it's going to break and your house is going to fall down so like, people aren't any different people can only take so much and if you don't tell people then You've got a lot of stuff to sort out on your own. Yeah, that's a really simplistic um, way to put it, but it's 
absolutely spot on with the, the metal view. That's right. that's uh, that's brilliant. So I understand you've um you've taken up football coaching. Yeah, I'm. I've coached football probably about three years now. And again, it was when I was when I was just feeling really low and lonely, and I didn't really know what to do. My little ones at the time were getting into football. We all just wanted being playing. Um, and the little one was coming through and I started coaching on the uh, just the kiddie soccer camp and then I, I took on a team at under sevens and under eights and then I was helping the older one. Um, I have done that. I've, I'm through, I've, done me, I've done me level one with the first one where you're pretty much a dad in a tracksuit and then I've done me level two and I've, I'm nearly at the back end of that. Nice. So I do, I enjoy my coaching. That's, that's how I ended up getting in contact with Ashley because I've been speaking obviously the, the, the football coaching side and I know oh sorry and I know a few of the guys who obviously coach my little ones and looking at seeing if there was any uh, ad hoc work there so that's how I ended up in touch with Steve who then ended up having a conversation and put us in touch with Ashley Right so how, how are the teams doing? Are they still involved? Aye they're flying they're uh, the little ones are very, very good actually. It's not they're not winning everything, but they're showing great fight. I've got a lot of little ones, kids who would look at me and go, oh, they're not seven, they're like four or five. Right. Teeny tiny. But very, very talented. And there'll come a point where they hit a growth spurt and they can keep up with the other kids because now they just get muscled um and bumped off the ball. Um but the the flying and the the good kids. I've just taken over another team. My youngest son was was in uh, one of the the first team somewhere um, and his coach left and I was asked to take over there and again you've got kids who were either messing about or being naughty or were just hard work in the space of three or four weeks just by having a laugh with them and, and, and treating them like normal people and having a bit of crack with them they're flying as well and it's not just a football it's like the personalities the way they behave the way they're behaving at home and just they're all good kids and they're all doing really well and you can see them like develop and grow as, as people and footballers it's really good I enjoy it yeah and how do you think that's helped you? it's well at first it gives a purpose I had to get out of the house I had to get dressed I had to go and run about I had to exercise um, but now it, like, it sounds bonkers to say but I've got a load of friends who are like at the same mentality as me. And I don't know whether that makes me sound really <laughs> strange that I've got the mentality of a five or six year old. But they just love having a laugh. They love playing football. They love cracking jokes. They're just entertaining to be around. And I, I like it, mate. I look forward to going and coaching football. Because then you see the mums and dads and you have a bit of crack and you make new friends. And then you're planning away for tournaments for, for obviously the summer and stuff. It's good. I enjoyed it, and again, it, I'm not. I'm not saying if you're feeling really sad and low, go out and be a football coach, but go and find something that you might enjoy doing, or might give you a bit of interaction with other people, or might push you into do something you wouldn't normally do. That's um, that's brilliant. It's inspiring, and since you've since you've linked up with the, the guys at the foundation, which has come through the coaching, um, how how has that been for you, and, and, and why do you think the the be a game changer campaign is, is so important? It's been really. Good. It's been really good to be fair. It's quite impressive because when you look at the foundation as a whole, I didn't really know what they did. I thought it was very much football schools or teaching kids PE. Um, but the fact that they're doing this and they actually are taking in, like a, a drive, because I've never seen anyone else about men's mental health um, nationally, never mind in the North East. And it's just it's, it's good that there's someone actually taking an interest Um and they've worked out what the, the target audience and the target demographic is really because obviously you do get mums and children going to football but it is 
mainly men. Um, and I think it's an ideal place to raise the awareness of it. I really, really do. And especially when you look at what's going on at the club at the minute as well and all those other little bits and pieces, this is one thing the club can actually say, yeah, do you know what? We might have all that going on, but look, we're trying to make a massive difference here. And it is working as well because obviously you've got my story, you've got the other guys, you've got people I've spoken to about it, people who'll be listening to this. And even if one person comes forward and says, do you know what? I'm really not well. And that one person gets better. It's a lot better than where it was before it started. Definitely, definitely. And you're absolutely spot on. It's something that we're going to be massively proud of in the northeast that we're, that we're leading on this, I think, by the sounds of it, actually, hopefully. Um, can you just give us your um, your final messaging? And then, Les, I want to leave the last word in the podcast to you, if you don't mind, just as your final pointer for anyone else. So, over to you, actually. Yeah, I just want to say a massive thank you to Les for sharing his story. It's really inspiring. And like I said, if this can help even one person that is that's you know we've, we've done our job with this campaign so if anyone has been affected by anything that Les has said or you might have noticed sort of symptoms within yourself I would really encourage you to go to the website so be a game changer on the Newcastle United Foundation website join the Facebook group and like I said there's information on where you can go for support if you do need it so thank you a final message Les anyone else that's thinking anything like what you have uh, I was at a point before I realised I was poorly where I wanted to die and I didn't want to wake up. And it was really, really hard. And I know there's people who do feel like that. But I, I managed to live with it and get through it and cope with it. And I ain't the strongest person. I'm not the most strongest willed person. And if I can do it and I can live with it and I can get through it, then you can as well. You just need to ask for help. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Les. It's, it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, We'll be back with you with some more specials with the foundation over the next few months, so keep your eyes peeled for those. And as I say, all of the links to all of the programmes and everything will be in tweets and at the bottom of this podcast, um, and also follow the foundation on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.